Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out CF Capital. CF Capital is the premier boutique real estate investment firm in the Midwest and Southeast region of the United States. We are a national real estate investment firm with a purpose. We provide property investment and asset management solutions to help passive investors maximize returns on high value multifamily communities. But our investments go far beyond acquisitions. We invest in people. We are in the business of elevating communities and raising the bar for everyone within our ecosystem. CF Capital is a real estate investment firm focused on the acquisition and operation of multifamily assets. We confidently deliver tax advantage, stable cash flow, and capital appreciation with a margin of safety. By investing alongside our team, investors can preserve and grow their wealth without having to deal with tenants, termites, or toilets. Investors come and stay for the outsized returns we create in our deals while appreciating the ancillary opportunity to make a bigger impact that only CF Capital can provide. If you're an investor and want to invest with us, here's how. Learn more about CF Capital at cfcapllc.com or by simply clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. We will see you on the inside of this powerful community. So let's elevate communities together. For people who are new to the sector, I tell them there are two reasons to buy in gold, to buy gold. One is as insurance and the other is as an investment. And as insurance, it's wealth insurance. It ensures the value of everything you work for and built over your lifetime. The, the difference it, from traditional insurance is say, you buy home insurance, but you don't really expect your house to catch on fire, do you? It still is a chance. So you carry insurance and your mortgage company makes sure you carry that insurance. Um, that's protecting against a possibility. By owning gold, you are protecting yourself against not a possibility, but an inevitability, something you know is going to happen. You know that uh, three years down the road, the dollar is going to be worth significantly less in terms of purchasing power than it is today. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here, and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Brian London today, you are going to learn about the current state of the geopolitical landscape, the macroeconomic circumstances that are driving risks that are creating opportunities, and how you can position yourself to not only capture those opportunities, but to mitigate tremendous risk on the horizon. You're also going to learn about the case for gold and real assets, hint, hint, including real estate. You're gonna to love today's conversation with the CEO of the New Orleans Investment Conference, and of course, the CEO of Jefferson Financial Incorporated. Wow, I love this conversation so much. Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. And by the way, it's also about understanding the crosswinds of the geopolitical landscape and the macroeconomic forces that are at play that are in this sea of investments of real estate in particular that we play in and are so important for us to understand. So I think you're gonna love this conversation. You're going to walk away with tremendous value. Of course, I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and entrepreneur. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? 
it is time. So let's raise the bar today. And I want to invite you to pay the fee, pay it forward, share this episode with one person. That's all you have to do. Also give us a rating, review, subscribe or follow Elevate Podcast on wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. Let's buckle up because we have some amazing content for you today. I want to introduce you to Brian London. With a career spanning four decades in the investment markets, Brian London serves as the president and CEO of Jefferson Financial Incorporated, a highly regarded producer of investment-oriented events and publisher of investment newsletters and special reports. Under the Jefferson Financial umbrella, Mr. London serves as publisher and editor of Gold Newsletter, the publication that has been the cornerstone of precious metals advisories since 1971. You're going to learn about that beginning today and the exact day that that company was founded and why. And by the way, the mentor that brought Brian up and really has formed the way that he looks at not only markets, but business and life in general. You're going to love that part of this conversation. He is also the host of the annual New Orleans Investment Conference, the oldest and most respected investment event of its kind. And I can attest to that uh, being a, an attendee in the past as well. As an as editor of Gold Newsletter, Mr. London covers not only resource stocks, but also the entire world of investing from small caps to every type of macroeconomics and geopolitical issues that ultimately affect every investor. As host of the New Orleans Investment Conference, Mr. London has annually brought the giants of investing, economics and geopolitics together in an intimate in intimate presentations with many of today's most sophisticated private investors. You're going to love this conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy this discussion with Brian London. Brian London, welcome to Elevate, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, Tyler. Great to be with you. I mean, we've talked about this for over a year, I guess, an earlier year. And uh, so great to be on your show. No, it's great to be with you. It was, I was telling you, you know, I was reflecting back when we initially met, I was with my business partner, Brian Flaherty at your New Orleans Investment Conference, which by the way, if the listeners have not checked out the New Orleans Investment Conference, they must. It is the greatest investing event in the world. And it happens every single year. And of course, we'll put links in the show notes as where the listeners can find that in addition to a discount code a little bit later in today's episode. And you'll just want to check out the link in the show notes. But when we originally met at your event, it was interesting because Brian introduced himself. He said, hey, I'm Brian Flaherty. He said, you said, wait a minute, what? what's your name? And uh, you told us that your middle name was Flaherty as well. So it was almost like the, the cosmic universe was drawing us together immediately. What do you think? Yeah, and that's something very few people know about me. So I feel like I'm lying here exposed completely to you and your audience here. <laughs> We're getting the real intimate uh, insider look. And it's, in speaking of that, before we dive into the meat of this conversation, as a Louisiana native, as an LSU grad, I mean, you got to tell me what happened this past weekend with the LSU Tigers. My goodness. Why, why are you doing that? Why did you start this? <laughs> I'm still in mourning. It was a second half from absolute hell, and it just steamrolled over us. And, you know, first game of the season, young players not doing the right things and, you know, playing against what turned out to be a really, really good team. So uh, it just didn't turn out well. Um, and, you know, I, I think we'll probably get back on – get our feet back under us with a couple more games to kind of get warmed up. But uh, yeah, it just turned on us in the second half. And 
I am really depressed about that. And I'm not sure if I can continue this podcast now that you really put me in such a sour mood. But I'll take some, I'll, I'll hit, take a couple of hits of coffee and see if I can get back on track now. Hey, I understand as a Kentucky Wildcat myself, you know, from a basketball perspective, when we have when we have problems, you know, it, it really hits me deep in the soul. And I can understand the same from an LSU football standpoint. Uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I've always had, you know, a liking towards LSU. And it was like, man, that was surprising uh, first you know, showing of the season there, but we'll see. They'll, they'll hopefully they'll get it back on track. But with regard to the conversation today, Brian, I'm excited about this because you bring a wealth of wisdom, experience, and track record of sharing insights. And so I want to dive into that. And as we do, I want to familiarize you with the audience before we dive into really a lot of the meat of the conversation. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate about you is that you have leveraged mentors in your life in so many aspects. And of course, it really shows in the New Orleans Investment Conference year after year, bringing together the greatest minds in investing. But even back many, many years in several decades back, learning from your mentor and ultimately succeeding him at Jefferson Financial. Tell me a little bit about that experience and, and what imprint that's had on you as you've continued forward. Yeah, you know, career-wise, and I guess a lot personally, uh, Jim Blanchard was the most important mentor in my life, um, and and so many other people. And a lot of he's not as widely known uh, outside of the the gold community or hard money, sound money community, but he was actually instrumental in getting gold legalized for. Uh, for American citizens to own. It's amazing for us to think about today, but for decades, since 1933, it was illegal for Americans to own gold outside of jewelry or or rare coins. Uh, And this really just, it was like the government was uh, steering, it's like the captain of the Titanic was steering the, the ship toward an iceberg, but before they hit uh, intentionally went around and and took everyone's life jackets and and sank the lifeboats. Uh, so the government was depreciating the currency, inflating the currency, and uh, and it gave the the citizens no way to protect themselves from that. And it was really diabolical uh, when you think about it. But Jim, on August fifteenth, nineteen seventy one, uh, he was a school teacher in New Orleans, and he heard on his car radio, uh, the announcement that Nixon was severing the last remaining uh, uh, tie between gold and the dollar. While U.S. citizens couldn't own gold, the dollar was technically and legally uh, transferable for gold for other countries. So other countries, uh, England and, and primarily France, Charles de Gaulle, knew that the dollar wasn't worth what we were saying it was and decided to, to send the dollars over to the U.S. Treasury and demand gold in return. So the gold vaults were being depleted at a very rapid rate. Uh, Jim heard that uh, Nixon was severing this tie, and, and that was the, the last remaining uh, restraint on government spending and devaluation of the dollar. So he, he predicted that we were going to have a era of inf- of high inflation, which of course we did, and to uh, to rectify the fact that we the citizens couldn't own gold, he 
decided to start something called Gold Newsletter as a way to lobby and advocate for the return of legal gold ownership. So that on that day in 1971, he started Gold Newsletter. Uh, and then when he was successful in getting gold legalized in 1974, he decided to have a conference investment event to teach Americans how to invest in gold, which he did. And that eventually became known as the New Orleans Investment Conference. I started working for Jim in uh, 1985 as a junior copywriter and quickly developed a, a friendship with him. He kind of took me under his wing uh, and taught me a lot. Well, everything I, I didn't know about uh, hard money, sound money, and really more broadly, the, the personal liberty and libertarian movement and, uh, you know, uh, the importance of gold and gold's role as sound money in that movement. Um, so he was a just a tremendous influence on me. And as a junior copywriter, I kind of rose through the ranks, uh, developed marketing for him and helped market the company. He's, he sold the company, bought it back, kept his conferences in the newsletter and brought me over to a new company uh, just to do the conferences and newsletters in 1990. And, uh, and I was running his business from 90, 1990 to 1999 when he passed away. And then I took the, I bought the majority interest in the company that what I didn't already own from uh, the estate and have been running it ever since. So uh, every day, my, I and our staff uh, tried to kind of burnish that legacy that Jim left. But he was just an incredible individual, remarkably uh, charismatic. He had uh, been paralyzed since age 17 in a wheelchair, but he went all over the world, North Pole, uh, the only handicapped person or at that point to visit the, the North Pole. He went behind the, uh, the Iron Curtain and Bamboo Curtain to spread freedom-oriented literature. Uh, just a, 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 an incredibly dynamic, charismatic individual that in, influenced and impacted every, literally everyone he met. Um, and to me, it was just a huge degree, uh, influenced me to a huge degree. I have no idea where I would be in life and in my business career if I would never met him. It was just an extremely fortunate set of circumstances. You know, I can really sense the, um, the emotion that you have when talking yeah. about Jim and, and the legacy that he has left on so many and the legacy that you and the team continue to carry forward. So I just really wanted to just call that out and, and share with you that I appreciate that. Um, you know, what, what was it that you most admired about him? Was it, you know, his courage, you know, while being um, paralyzed and, you know, pushing forward some big, bold ideas that were at the time illegal, you know, to own gold yeah. was illegal or what, what did you most admire about him that you've modeled in yourself? That's an interesting question because there are so many qualities uh, about him. Uh, he lived each day as if it were his last um, because he had gone through a situation where he was not expected, frankly, to live another day. Uh, so he had been through that and every day was a blessing and a gift to him. Uh, and so he, he, he had a constant vision of legacy and leaving behind and, and getting the most out of life, uh, and creating those ripples that spread and, and last that long after you're gone and, and create other ripples and, 
uh, and affect more and more people. So he did that and was able to do that. He did not anticipate his kind of premature death, but but I guess he did in a way. You know, he 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 did feel like every day was a gift, and he needed to make something out of every day. And in that kind of energy that he brought every day to, to everything he did uh, was especially uh, impactful to a natural procrastinator like myself. So it it kind of fit like you know lock. A uh, key into a lock and 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 bolstered one of my personal what I thought was one of my personal weaknesses, um, and that's something that I I think to this day uh, affects me every moment. I love that, and I I would share the same thing. You know, just being you know, I would say in some cases I'm probably a natural procrastinator. I'm sure many of the listeners can relate to that. But when you think back and you reflect back to perhaps you know looking at the arc of his life in that every day needed to count because his time was short and we're still talking about his impact today i mean that's very inspiring to say all right let's make it count and let's go for the fences so now as we fast forward and think about the legacy that you've continued forward now obviously your company producing investment oriented events such as the new orleans investment conference newsletters and special reports such as gold newsletter and you know of course you cover not only gold silver and mining stock markets but also the macroeconomic and geopolitical issues that ultimately affect every investor. And I think every investor that's listening to this podcast today recognizes that everything is interrelated. So Brian, tell me what is your assessment of the current state of the macroeconomic and geopolitical landscape? I think it's a tough question because there's so many different crosswinds you know, at play here, yeah. but tell me a little bit about your assessment. Yeah, if you try to look at the near term, you know, the short term and what's going on today, uh, there are lots of crosswinds and it does get very confusing. So what I like to do is try and look at the bigger picture um, and then it really gets simplified. There is a, sim- a simpler, more um, apparent and uh, trend that's that's obvious. And it goes back really to. Jim Blanchard in that period of time uh, when we severed our link to to gold. You know, there's a website out there um, called, uh, I think it's WTF happened in 1971. And you, and it has a number of charts that show uh, really dozens of economic indicators and, and um, uh, you know, demographic indicators and everything else where they're kind of flat lines. And in 1971, it either soars or, or plummets in 1971. And so what happened? Well, what happened was there's no longer any governor or restraint on government spending or devaluation of the dollar. And this started really in the 1960s with uh, much more aggressive deficit spending. Uh, we had guns and butter. We had a lot of uh, entitlement programs and welfare programs started at the same time. We were spending a lot on the military and the, the government budget went uh, significantly into deficit spending environment. And that accelerated over the years. So in 1971, the central bankers all of a sudden got free reign to just print as much money as they wanted to to pay for this deficit spending. And they did that with wild abandon. I, I liken it to uh, giving, a, and this is um, uh, 
uh, uh, paraphrasing an old friend of mine, late friend of mine, PJ O'Rourke, who said it's like giving uh, it was like giving a, a teenager the keys to the car and a bottle of Jack Daniels. Mm. So all of a sudden, these central bankers had this bottle of Jack Daniels and the keys to the car, and they immediately drove it into a ditch, which was essentially the 1970s. Then they became a little more circumspect about that. We had Paul Volcker, Volcker came in, killed off inflation by raising interest rates through the ceiling. But after Volcker did that, we began a multi-decadal trend of ever easier money. Every time there was a recession or any kind of a slowdown in the economy, the central bank lowered interest rates. But when they tried to normalize things and raise interest rates back, they could never get it up to the midpoint of the previous range without spawning another crisis. So over 40 some odd years, we had ever lower interest rates. And in that process, uh, investors, investment markets, uh, the government, everybody became addicted to not just easy money, but ever easier money. And we see that in the process of interest rates going down to post-2008, zero. And that was the first radical departure, the great financial crisis of 2008. They went, they brought interest rates to zero immediately and then started expanding the Fed's balance sheet, coming up with all these other programs to rescue Wall Street. Then came COVID and they had to do it again. But because the, the patient was addicted and had developed a tolerance to the drug, they had to do even more. So everything they did in 2008, they over four to five years, they did uh, after COVID hit and shut down the economy, they did in four to five days. So it was just absolutely dramatic. And instead of injecting liquidity into Wall Street and the financial system, they injected it directly into the veins of the economy by just putting money in people's banks, bank accounts. Um, and this has been, this cycle has gotten ever and ever more dramatic. And now we're at the point that the next crisis, which of course will be spawned by these efforts that the central bank took post COVID, uh, the next crisis will demand even more and it's really going to knock your socks off. So what, what I, from a macroeconomic standpoint, getting back to the original question, I'd like to simplify things and, and just point out that this trend is in is end game because there's not that much more you can do except uh, dramatically uh, destroy the credibility of currencies, of fiat currencies around the world. And uh, the water is circling the drain much more quickly now. We're having crises come on the heels of each other much more quickly. So whether this end game lasts 20 years or two years, uh, nobody knows uh, where the next crisis will come from or when it will come. Nobody can predict and don't believe anybody who says that they can. Uh, one thing we, we can be confident in, or the two things we can be confident in, is that the central banks are going to respond with just a tsunami of liquidity onto the markets to rescue the markets once again and to an even greater extent than they did post-COVID. And the other thing we can be confident in is that going into this process, into this period, we're going to want to own 
real assets, primarily gold and silver, uh, real estate, uh, real assets that protect against the, the rapid depreciation of a currency, which is what we're going to get. At some point, this end game is actually going to result in a reset of the financial system to try to regain or reinstill immediately some credibility to currencies. And I believe that's going to involve gold in, in some form or fashion. Wow. And um, I, I think I agree with you, um, you know, from a high level, you know, you look back 50 years and you can see this trend continuing to accelerate. And to your point, you know, over the past three years, we've had tremendous intervention, which is causing tremors across the landscape, across the financial system. Yeah. And when you think about a crisis, you know, earlier this year, it appeared that we were beginning to look at another crisis when it came to the banking system and several yeah. collapses. You know, do you think it rhymes with that? Do you think that was the beginning and the signs of some cracks that are, you know, on the on the horizon that we should be anticipating? Or what are what is your assessment of what the crisis could look like in the event that it's not what we saw earlier in 2023? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, you don't, the way I like to put it is you don't go from the easiest money, uh, the most accommodating monetary policy in human history. I mean, we're talking about 5,000 year lows on interest rates, plus dramatic fiscal, uh, uh, fiscal efforts and, and uh, direct injections, as I said, of monetary liquidity. So you don't go from the easiest money in human history to one of the harshest tightening episodes ever seen without breaking something and probably breaking a lot of things. And so what we're going to see, I believe in the months just ahead is those cracks starting to spread into fissures and, and something breaking and perhaps a few things because everything's so interconnected that you topple one domino and it just has such expanding effects. Uh, the banking crisis was a first sign of that. You know, when I look at what First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank did in their banking practices, it wasn't anything that was, you know, an outlier in terms of, of policy and practices. They were doing what most banks were doing. They weren't fully prepared for the duration risk in that tightening episode, but that duration risk and hedging against that carried enormous costs because of the severity and how quickly rates tightened. So not a lot of banks, you know, perhaps they were more exposed than others. I don't think Silicon Valley Bank was. I think that was a classic bank run, you know, a lack of confidence. And it spread through uh, tweets and text messages. And immediately you had a run on the bank. That could happen and be sparked by any other series of one or two of banking failures out there. So that, I think, could reignite at any point in time. We have the uh, upcoming recession that every reliable indicator says is coming in probably early next year or sometime soon. Uh, will that force the Fed to pivot and start loosening rates again? Will that be the crisis? Uh, nobody knows. Will it be the derivatives out there? There's uh, Alan Greenspan once told me that that was the thing that scared him the most, the derivative exposure of the too big to fail banks. Uh, nobody knows what that exposure is at maximum. 
Um, but in, the number doesn't begin with a T, it begins with a Q. <laughs> so wow. it is literally around a quadrillion. Um, Unfathomable number. That is. And, uh, you know, it's, it could be something else. And one thing that I've been highlighting is the fact that we're paying right now about a trillion dollars in, in uh, interest costs, debt service costs on the federal debt every year. Uh, that goes to nothing but into the, the money pit. And so we have to raise another trillion dollars every year to pay just the interest in the federal debt. The U.S. right now is in a technical debt spiral. Uh, it would not be solvent. It would not be standing today if it were a private enterprise or, frankly, any other government on earth that was not issuing the world's reserve currency. So that could alone force the Fed to pivot. Something's going to happen over the months directly ahead that's going to force the Fed to pivot. And I think the markets right now are just starting to reflect that fact. Yeah, it feels like you know, the Federal Reserve is playing chicken with this policy because, you know, over the past 18 months, it's been the fastest rate hike cycle in history. And, yeah. you know, they're they're playing chicken, you know, the quote unquote fighting inflation. Yet, to your point, there are some big indicators that suggest they're going to have to pivot at some point. But even, you know, from a larger perspective, what you're suggesting is, after this next pivot or after this next easier money policy, which you're suggesting has to be even bigger than what we just experienced three yeah. and a half years ago. What you're suggesting is after that tsunami, we're going to be looking at a collapse in currencies and perhaps even a, or, you know, first a devalue, massive devaluation and then potentially a collapse. So talk a little bit more about why you feel that is the case, you know, that they can't just keep playing this modern monetary theory game into perpetuity. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen after this next episode uh, or the one after that or, or the one after that. The timing is, you know, that's always the thing that's in question. Um, but you can look at the trend and know where it's going. Uh, and you can once the 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 it gets embedded in the public mind of everyday people not you and i and your listeners who are really you know in tune with what's going on and and uh in seeking out this information and educating themselves but when you know joe the plumber and you know and george the electrician out there starts realizing that every time we have this financial crisis wherever it comes from there's a whole lot more dollars are, that are created. And people in other countries have gone through the same thing, that there's going to be a tremendous amount of currency created. Um, then they start to lose respect for that currency, the value of that currency. And they start to plan their lives and their investments and their businesses according to the fact that, uh, or in recognition of the fact that that currency is going to buy a lot less in the future and a whole lot less when the next crisis comes along and everybody's going to start to realize this. This is the, the kind of embedding the public consciousness that the Fed talks about on occasion when inflation expectations get anchored in the way people go about their daily lives. Um, that's the kind of thing that I don't think uh, the Fed today can um, you know, can avert and, 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 and change, 
you know, when Volcker did it, he multiplied interest rates, you know, to over 20 percent. When he did that, the federal debt was 35 percent of GDP. Uh, today, it's about 125 percent. So Powell and company, Powell and his group on the FOMC, I give them a lot of respect and, uh, you know, in credit for what they've done so far. They've been far more determined uh, in the inflation fight than I would have uh, expected they would have been. But they just don't have the toolbox that Volcker had. They literally cannot get interest rates for any period of time uh, higher than the rate of inflation. Uh, otherwise, the whole fiscal house of cards collapsed. And, you know, you look at inflation. Inflation is the rate at which the dollar is depreciating. If that rate is less than the interest, the more dollars you have to create to pay for your debt. If those two rates are out of balance or if the, the interest rates are higher than the rate of inflation, then you have to the whole house of cards collapses because you have to create so many more dollars. And you literally cannot afford to pay uh, to service the debt. So we have to have a real a negative real interest rates, uh, interest rates that are negative when accounting for the rate of inflation, essentially forever going forward. In that kind of an environment, even if it isn't a crisis, that kind of a background is enormously bullish for real things that hold their value, gold, silver, monetary metals. Um, and real estate, you know, and, and other kinds of collectibles and the like. But those gold, silver, real estate and investments that leverage on those are really where people have to be going forward. You know, you're not a prophet, right? You're not just looking into the future and just saying, all right, here's exactly what's going to happen just based on my level of intellect. You've been digging into history your entire life and reflecting back on the patterns throughout history that other civilizations have gone through with regard to monetary policy, currency collapse, civilization collapse, and, you know, the continuum of time. So tell me a little bit about what does history tell us about the future of money and currency and investments as you see it, because, you know, I think it's fascinating to look back like ancient Rome, as an example, there were a lot of patterns that we're talking about today that we're seeing that also transpired at that point in, in human history. So tell me a little bit about what you see from your vantage point with regard to history informing how you believe things will play out. Yeah, it's uh, the bottom line is that every currency in history has collapse has gone to zero, even if it's based on gold and silver, uh, because they can still depreciate those currencies. And of course, Rome is the easy comparison, but it's human nature. Uh, it, it, it is embedded in human nature. Governments will overspend, uh, in Rome's case, on military campaigns, bread and circuses. You know, Rome had uh, very large entitlement programs, you know, that, that a lot of people don't realize. Nothing, human nature is the same throughout history. Uh, you know, you look at ancient Greeks, Romans, Romans Sumerians, uh, they were all the same as we are. They weren't dumber than we are. They were as intelligent than, as we were. And frankly, they had life experiences that probably gave them a lot more common sense than is uh, found today. 
But Rome is the easy comparison because it's so well chronicled. We have uh, uh, Cicero, writings from Cicero, and I feature one in, in most of my presentations, where he stood up in the, in the forum and just denounced this deficit spending and the public fisc and how it was out of balance and how they had to stop all this, this spending and, uh, and get things back on a sound financial basis. But it didn't. The Republic gave way to the empire uh, and the Roman emperors would have to pay the armies that protected them in all of Rome and kept increasing their entitlements. Um, and to do that, they had to debase the currency. And if you look at the, the uh, uh, chart, which we can use today, we know exactly how it was done and how the valuations of the Roman denarius were at, at very, every point in time. But the Roman denarius was the currency, common currency of Rome. It was silver, and they would just keep uh, putting more alloys into the into the the coins, so they would contain less and less silver. So you, we have charts that plot the debasement of the denarius, and it directly plots the fall of Rome. Now, the other lesson is it doesn't necessarily. This is why I don't say this next crisis is going to be the destruction of the dollar. Because you can always get cheaper and it takes longer than you think. Um, the Federal Reserve was created a, a little over 100 years ago, about 110 years ago. So we are just probably, you know, we're along well along that process, but it took a couple hundred years for Rome to fall. Uh, still within that time span, you can see periods where the denarius was valued by 90% over, say, 50 or 60 years. And one of the things I do in my presentations is I plot, show that plot of the decline of the denarius and put it against the decline of the dollar since, say, 1965. And it's absolutely the same. Um, so that's that's what happens. And, you know, we would say that the dollar has not been destroyed, uh, that, you know, the dollar is still sound because. It's happened like, you know, the frog in boiling water, that water just keeps getting warmer and warmer and it never jumps out of the pot. But if you historians, as we can look back on Rome, one day historians will look back on this episode in the U.S. and say this was the decline of at least this monetary system. This is where the dollar was destroyed because over the 50, 60 years, it lost 90 percent of its purchasing power. Uh, they're not going to call that a depreciation. They're going to call that a collapse. We call it a depreciation because we lived through it and it happened in slow motion for us, seemingly. Uh, so that's the lesson from history is it is not different this time. There's nothing new under the sun. People today are the same as they were a, a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. Those people uh, walking around the forum in their togas were, were, you know, doing the podcasts of their day and warning the smart people of what was to come and what was happening around them. So, yeah, it, it, that's the lesson of history. It's, it is a trend. It's a never ending cycle. It's human nature and it never really changes. Elevate nation. You know, you can't manage what you don't measure. 
So when it comes to marketing and sales, how can you be sure your decisions are the right ones? I've got the answer for you, Sharp Wilkinson. Sharp Wilkinson is a unique agency that specializes in developing data-driven marketing and sales strategies for clients. I've been working with Sharp Wilkinson for a while now, and I can personally attest to the way that they immerse themselves in my organization and maintain a hyper-responsive orientation. Best of all, they use data to inform their strategies and drive real tangible growth. And every company needs continuing growth, right? If you think your organization could benefit from data-driven marketing and sales, growth starts at Sharp Wilkinson. Visit sharpwilkinson.com to take the first step on your journey. Tell them Tyler sent you. So a lot of people listen to this conversation. They'll say, all right, that's terrifying. You know, we're talking about perhaps another, you know, civilization collapse or, you know, a total new world order. As we move forward, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, you know, apprehension to that thought process. But I think wise investors read history and they position themselves appropriately so that they can not only protect the downside, mitigate the risk, but capture the opportunity of challenge. Because, you know, through these type of problems, you know, there are tremendous opportunities. Tell me a little bit about the case for gold. You've mentioned that a few times and real assets in particular. But you've mentioned gold being, you know, a place you want to be to understand that, look, there's some massive changes on the horizon. We don't know how far the horizon really is. It could be 100 years, could be 20 years, could be two years or somewhere in between or, or otherwise. But you believe there's no doubt that at some point we are going to see a currency collapse. Tell me a little bit about the case for gold and why that's something that investors should be paying close attention to. Yeah, there's really for people who are new to the sector, I tell them there are two reasons to buy in gold, to buy gold. One is as insurance and the other is as an investment. And as insurance, it's wealth insurance. It ensures the value of everything you work for and built over your lifetime. Um, you know, the, the difference from traditional insurance is, say, you buy home insurance, but you don't really expect your house to catch on fire, do you? It still is a chance. So you carry insurance and your mortgage company makes sure you carry that insurance. Um, that's protecting against a possibility. By owning gold, you are protecting yourself against not a possibility, but an inevitability, something you know is going to happen. You know that uh, three years down the road, the dollar is going to be worth significantly less in terms of purchasing power than it is today. Uh, in 30 years, it's going to be worth a whole lot less in terms of purchasing power than it is today. So you know this is going to happen. It's only the rate uh, or degree that's in question. But and, and gold protects against that. You know, there there are uh, charts out there, and I feature a lot of them, and people can do it with the CPI. And actually, there's a great website called PricedInGold.com that takes a lot of things like uh, the S&P 500 and prices it in gold. In other words, just divides the level of the, of the uh, S&P by the price of gold at that time. And if you do that, you see that uh, the U.S. stock market hasn't done anything over 60 years. It's at trading at the same level <clears throat> as it was in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, if you look at that, if you price, say, the, the cost of an Ivy League education in gold, it is now at the same level, price in gold, that it was in the 1930s. So you're protect protecting your purchasing power because gold over the long sweep of history uh, is the, the standard that retains its value. 
the currencies uh, change in relation to gold. The value of everything in the world changes in relation to gold, but gold stands there as the standard and is unchanging. So it's not like the price of gold is uh, $1,950. It's that the dollar is one nineteen hundred and fiftieth of an ounce of gold. And, and that's what's, what fluctuates. And that kind of gold-centric uh, mentality and approach to everything is very important. You need to realize that you need to have this anchor for your wealth and your portfolio. And that can be, you know, five or 10% of your wealth, something to, to stabilize the, the value of everything you've worked for over your lifetime. And there are ways you can actually leverage that, you know, not to get too complicated, but you'd still need to have a holding in physical metals or representation, in my opinion. Now, when you look at the macroeconomic picture and you can see that the relative value of gold to currencies and other uh, financial assets is about to increase, which I firmly believe, then that's a time when you want to leverage that macro outlook by investing in, in gold uh, in gold related investments like mining stocks and the like to, uh, to leverage that trend and try to build wealth through that trend. And that's where the investing angle comes, comes into play. So the listeners definitely need to check out gold newsletter, because if you want to be educated on what we're talking about here, it's, you know, it's about going much further in depth than what you just shared. But I think that was a great precursor and a great introduction for folks who have been considering and do recognize the challenges on the horizon to say, all right, what's the best way to, you know, ensure myself against certain you know, circumstances coming to pass? Um, and also, how can I potentially profit from a massive change in currency and so forth? So, you know, I want to ask you to get your crystal ball out a little bit uh, and think think ahead in terms of some geopolitics, because we've got some big things happening across the world that obviously impact the economics of everything that we're talking about. You know, in some senses, there's a, you know, a, a dialogue or discussion or projection of, you know, a big breakout and hot war, potentially World War Three coming out, you know, in, in Eastern Europe and so forth, and potentially obviously spreading across the globe. You know, we've got some uh, big elections on the horizon as well. I mean, how do you anticipate things playing out? And I know I'm, I'm asking a challenging crystal ball type of question. What are you seeing uh, and how are you positioning yourself and how are you seeing some of the wisest investors position considering the instability that we're seeing on the horizon? Yeah, you know, it's it's always easy to look at, at the geopolitical and, and economic situation and say, man, things are crazier than they ever have been before. Now, that said, on a macroeconomic basis, they are crazier because we never had zeroed interest rates. We never had all these programs before. Uh, none of this is normal. And you, you, if you would have predicted it, it before 2008, they would have just called you a, 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 a kook and, you know, you would have, nobody would have listened to you. Um, but now they act like it's all normal. From a geopolitical standpoint, it's always easy to say things are really tough. But, you know, I grew up in an era where, you know, we had nuclear um, nuclear bomb drills and had to get under our school desk, you know, and we had the 1960s and 1970s, a lot of unrest. Uh, so it's always that kind of thing out there. There are definitely trends today that we need to be concerned about. 
Uh, one of them is de-dollarization, which is a trend that goes back really to the 1960s when, uh, you know, the dollar wasn't worth what we said it was in terms of gold and other nations recognized that and tried to move away from the dollar toward gold. Then we stopped that and then just started creating a lot more dollars. And that that's part and parcel of what's happening now where nations are increasingly trying to liberate themselves from the restraints of a dollar-based global economy. Uh, that trend is accelerating as the U.S. government is, has used the dollar as a weapon through sanctions and the SWIFT payment system, et cetera. Um, I'm not one of the uh, analysts who think that that trend is imminent. I think it's likely inevitable, but I don't know that it's imminent. Uh, the BRICs are trying to get away from the dollar-based system. If they will, if they do that, or the only way that they can do that and establish any credibility for that currency is by attaching it in some obvious and, and uh, you know irrefutable way to gold. Uh, that's the only way they'll be able to, to to get that to work because nobody wants to invest in a currency that's subject to the whims of Putin or Xi. Um, so that will involve gold. Whether that's going to happen in the near future, I don't know. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, bureaucratic uh, inertia that would prevent that from happening anytime soon. But it, the trend is there. The trend is away from the dollar, uh, away from the uh, the U.S. and the U.S. being able to assert its role around the world. That kind of thing can recover quickly, uh, but I don't know that there's political will to do that. So, yeah, there's a lot of things to worry about out there. And you hear it from, obviously, a lot of people who say some really smart things, make some very intelligent analyses. But, you know, I've been in this business for uh, the better part of 40 years now. And I've heard a lot of smart people come on our stage and, and predict apocalypse or at least, you know, dangers ahead. Uh, but I've never seen one that's been able to predict uh, the precise path forward. And and I don't think anyone can. I don't think anyone's smart enough to do that. Um, what we can be or we can do is look ahead and say there's dramatic uncertainty. And there is this trend where currencies are becoming cheaper. It's not just the dollar, but every fiat currency out there. And it is human nature. And it's, it, it is a pattern that has been repeated for thousands of years throughout human history. Uh, if that is the case, and if that is the broad trend, you want to have a focus on real things that last through time, that have been proven to last through time. And that's, you know, the monetary metals and real assets like real estate and some other things. Brian, this has been such a great conversation. And for folks who have enjoyed this conversation, wetting their beak in terms of, you know, this this geopolitical discussion, the macroeconomic discussion, as well as positioning themselves to be prepared for continued change. You know, where can folks find more about the New Orleans Investment Conference and talk to them a little bit about some of the folks that are going to be gracing that stage this year? Because it's an unbelievable lineup. Yeah, thank you. For that, I, I think that this is our best lineup ever. And being the the history and reputation of the New Orleans Conference, that that means essentially it's the best conference in an investment history, investment event history. Um, 
at least in my view, because I picked all of these speakers, you know, I've listened to and watched everybody. I'm an inveterate reader of, of information uh, and uh, investment information and macroeconomic views. And I see and read everything. And I know uh, who's really good. And I've gotten all of them. There may be one or two people in the world today that I was not able to get. Uh, but, you know, we have we focus on geopolitics, macroeconomics, and then the the individual market. So we kind of go from the top big picture and drill down. And we've been known for that. We've had Ayn Rand, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Alan Greenspan, uh, Milton Friedman, a lot of really big names over the years speak at our event. So we're kind of known for that. What I've got this year are people who I think are in the forefront of their respective areas of expertise. I've got Matt Taibbi, who I think is the most important journalist of our generation, who is really, you know, exposing government efforts at censorship uh, and assaults on free speech. Uh, on the uh, macroeconomic end of things, I have James Rickards, uh, who's absolutely brilliant. Danielle DiMartino Booth, former Fed insider, who gives us great views inside that institution. George Gammon, who's a tremendous economic educator and forward uh, thinker. Rick Rule, who in my uh, area is probably the greatest resource investor ever. If Dominic Frisbee, who's a British com uh, comedian and writer on, uh, on gold and cryptocurrencies and investing. Brilliant guy. Brent Johnson, known on Twitter as San Santiago Capital, who's another brilliant analyst. Lynn Alden, who I think is the greatest macroeconomic thinker in the world today, who rarely appears in person at investment events. We've got her coming in person. Uh, I've got Constantin Kizen, who a lot of people apparently don't know about, but he is another British stand-up comic. I may have a panel just on British stand-up comics at, <laughs> at this event, who is a writer on personal liberty and freedom and uh kind of an anti-woke uh, commentator out there who's absolutely brilliant. And I urge anyone who isn't aware of, of Constantin's views to, to look him up on Twitter and, and Googling. Absolutely brilliant guy. I have Dave Collum, who is a professor of chemistry at uh, Cornell, who, um, thank God he has tenure because he would be fired for his views. No <laughs> in doubt. A, in a <laughs> second. Never holds his tongue and is just... Uh, Absolutely entertaining and inspiring speaker. Peter Bookvar, who I think is the smartest uh, market analyst out there. He is kind of the resident contrarian on CNBC. Uh, James Stack, who has predicted and warned against every bubble and, and found every bull market and bear market over the last 40 years. Not as well known as some of these other people, but again, I've seen everybody. He is absolutely the best. Peter Schiff, everybody knows Peter. Brilliant uh, analyst and speaker. I have Jim Arurio, who used to be on CNBC until he opened his trap once too often. And, uh, and he parted mutually with uh, CNBC, but he's a, a great trader uh, and also commentator on the state of the markets. Tavi Costa is a brilliant macroeconomic analyst, does a lot of great work in uh, the resource space. Uh, James Lavish, who's an, a brilliant uh, explainer, a very complicated 
a teacher of, of uh, simplifies very complicated macroeconomic topics. The real estate guys are a fi fixture in our events over the last decade. Really love those guys. They do an incredible job. And then I have literally dozens of uh, people who write newsletters on tangible assets, resource investing, the mac macroeconomics. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. And of course, I'll be there as well, kind of uh, um, uh, guiding the show and presenting a lot of the views that I explain in this podcast, but with also some specific recommendations on what to do. Well, so it, it really is a, just a tremendous dream team, in my view, for this I year. I can attest to you know the quality of the conference uh, as being an attendee myself. Um, it is absolutely spectacular. I'm super excited about that speaker lineup that you've been able to put together. It is unbelievable. And so folks can learn more about this at neworleansconference.com. Tell them a little bit about the uh, registration savings that they can garner by registering early online. Yeah, you'll have uh, an affiliate code that's more complicated to uh, or a link that 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 we can give them um, where they can save up to four hundred dollars from the on-site registration fee. So as the event draws closer, the registration cost rises and rises. Right now, if they respond right now, they can save four hundred dollars on on that registration fee and really. Um, guarantee them, themselves a spot at the event because there is limited capacity for the event. Um, so I do urge people to respond quickly. You know, go to the website, look at our speakers, Google some of our speakers, get an idea of what they're talking about. But beyond the speakers, the, the quality of the individuals that are there, you, we, I tell people all the time, you learn as much from talking to the attendees who have travel to New Orleans to to be in this kind of destination environment and share their views. These are all very successful investors and uh, business people and and uh, forward thinkers and self-directed investors that, you know, you get a lot from just talking to an intelligent crowd like that. No doubt. We will put links in the show notes uh, for that promo code so folks can get that discount. Uh, we'll get that special code for all the listeners of this particular podcast. So, Brian, what an outstanding conversation. I want to transition very quickly into the rapid fire section of the podcast, and then I'm going to let you go on oh, your way because you've got some very important stuff to handle today. Uh, tell me, and by the way, this is called the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon. And this discussion in many aspects, it's not average. I mean, the average folks, they want to put their head in the sand. They don't want to know about this stuff. It's very uncomfortable, right? There are challenging things to think about. There are challenging things to consider. But I would love to ask you a few things as you've continued to invest in yourself. What are two or three Three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years and why? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. I think I'd have to go over the last few years and think about it in my lifetime. You know, the classic one is, uh, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's that's affected so many people. And I've gotten to be friends with, with Robert Kiyosaki over the uh, past few years and just an extraordinary individual. Uh, so that's you know, he's spoken at our event, not this year, but but he's spoken at other events and really uh, obviously been an incredible speaker. So that's, you know, right off the bat. Um, I think that uh, Jim Blanchard, my mentor in the business, wrote an autobiography uh, called Confessions of a Gold Bug. And that was very impactful because it really got down a lot of the details that obviously I had talked to Jim over many years of how he got his start. But 
that that really uh, uh, crystallized things for me in, in a lot of the history of the of the sound money movement, personal liberty movement that he was able to get down. Um, you know, another one, I guess, and more, it's more relevant to the author, but uh, Moon, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress was a book by Robert Heinlein, who was a uh, incredibly influential science fiction writer from the 1930s through the 1970s. Uh, and he had a really his stories revolve around personal liberty and personal agency and how you're the master of your own future. Uh, and kind of exposed me to what I discovered later was more of a libertarian outlook on life. Um, you know, when I first started to work for Jim Blanchard, we one of the things that kind of cemented our friendship was that I didn't know anything about libertarianism or the freedom movement or anything like that. But we were both fans of Robert Heinlein and, and that kind of uh, created that bond between us and friendship. And then I discovered that if you look more into it, you discover a lot of other aspects of it, of uh, libertarian thought and really just personal liberty. Um, and and that, that from a very young age, literally as a preteen, that was how I was exposed to to those, that kind of mindset and worldview. I love that. I love asking that question to people like yourself, especially who have, you know, been so, you know, their, their outlook has been so shaped by books like that. So man, I, that was a golden share. We'll put links in the show notes as where the listeners can find those books. Um, tell me what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, Brian? Uh, you know, I try to, I, I talked earlier about ripples. I try to uh, emulate what Jim Blanchard kind of, you know, taught me or, or was set uh, was the example for of living every day like it's your last and meeting people on the street. One of the things that was great about Jim was that uh, whether he was talking to Margaret Thatcher or a cab driver, he approached them the same way uh, as an equal. And uh, as somebody whose views and life and outlook was was worthy and uh, he developed, he, he impacted a lot of lives just with his daily interactions. And so I try to do that, you know, perhaps not as well as Jim did or as impactfully as he did, but I try to keep a, uh, uh, a view of the, the horizon uh every day and and realize that life is not a destination it's a journey and and you have experiences every day where you can have an impact great or small and it's you know it's like the the wings of a butterfly what you think are or is a very small impact today can change the outlook of somebody else having a smile on your face having an interest in what they're doing uh, puts them in a better mood. And then that translates and that translates and you start those dominoes falling. So that's what I try to do on a daily basis is keep an eye on the horizon, on the big picture, and that everything we do kind of builds towards that future. And we don't really know what the full impact or influence is of every little thing we do today. 
And you've carried that legacy forward today, you know, with showing up with the level of respect that you have and the level of value that you've brought to this conversation. I just want, to, want you to know how much I appreciate it, how much the listeners, I'm sure, are appreciating this. Before I let you go, my last question for you is, what is the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Maybe even taking that previous thought process even a bit further, but what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? That, that's it. You know, when you go through trials and tribulations in life, you realize that the most important thing out there is not material possessions. It's the people in your life uh, and, and the pe people in general uh, that you are meeting every day and having a positive impact on people betters, not just them and not just, you know, the human race in general, but it betters you. It it, it reflects right back on you and changes your attitude. And when you hit those, those speed bumps, and in some cases, you know, brick walls in your life, and you have to figure out a way around them, um, it, it helps to know that this too shall pass. And if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, you'll get past that. So it really is attitude. You know, people say that happiness is a choice, but I've always kind of avoided that because it's almost uh, implies self-delusion, you know, uh, because sometimes you're not going to be happy and you can't choose to be otherwise. You can you can you can uh, encounter tragedy in your life and you're not going to be happy. But how you react is the one thing. Your attitude is the one thing uh, that you can choose. The one thing that you can control. So attitude is a choice. And, and, and uh, that's one of the things I try to remember every day and try to have that impact on a daily basis and, and on every moment of your life. Brian, how about us bringing this conversation full circle, man? We, we covered a lot. We covered the LSU Tigers. We covered geopolitics. We covered attitude and legacy, man. This has been an amazing conversation. I just want to thank you so much for being a part of it with me. Do you have any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? Oh, well, besides come to the New Orleans conference and talk to me further. You know, that's one of the things, just as a quick aside, I have an incredible staff. What I do at my event is uh, try to look busy, and I do a good job of it, but, but I'm literally trying to look like I'm busy and in charge. Everything runs so smoothly. I mean, you and I met. You saw that I was pretty relaxed uh, at the event. I love talking to people who come to the conference and, and exchanging views. So, you know, that that's one thing I would like to, to leave people with. Uh, come to our event. It is something to experience. You you really don't understand it or appreciate it unless you actually live through it. It is a remarkable thing. But the other thing I would say is, you know, again, look at human history. You we go through times where uh, this sort of thing happens, and and it's not normal, um, and you don't know what's what's ahead. But you have to protect for you your your significant others, your family, your lifestyles, you have to uh, recognize that these are not usual or normal times. And there are ways, time-tested, proven ways to protect yourself. And everybody needs to take that action now while they can. 
Well said, my friend. Well said. And the listeners can find you on Twitter or I guess X these days at Brian, B-R-I-E-N underscore London, L-U-N-D-I-N. Of course, we will also put a link in the show notes as to where the listeners can find you on LinkedIn as well as Facebook. But Brian, until next time, my friend, and until I see you in New Orleans, thank you again for spending time with us today and adding so much value. Tyler, that was an incredibly fun conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure, my friend. Talk soon. All righty. Take care. Elevate Nation. I've loved that conversation with Brian London. What an amazing guy. What an amazingly humble individual who has drawn so much wisdom from people over the years. And as you can see, it's not just about making money. It's not just about protecting yourself against future catastrophes. It's it's truly about leaving a legacy. So I, I really love the undertone of that in this conversation. If you found tremendous value in this conversation, please share it. Find uh, someone else to give this opportunity to make a ripple uh, impact in their life and tell them what you learned about yourself or about you know, geopolitics or the macroeconomic landscape that is informing some of your behavior or some of your positioning, um, you know, or otherwise, what was it that you learned from this conversation? I want to encourage you to jot down your distinctions and take massive action on those distinctions. Until next time, Elevate Nation, I just want to thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.